We are about to jump into uh, a very, very important section of John's Gospel. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for two years to get into this section, so this is a big, a big morning. Um, leaving final instructions for somebody is a big deal. Did you know that? If you've ever done this before, let's say you've gone, you're going on an extended vacation and you decide that you're going to leave somebody behind to care for your house or to care for your pets or to care for your plants, whatever it might be, you know it's a big deal. And you want to be as thorough uh, and detailed as possible as you give them those instructions because you're going to be gone. And so you say, do this, don't do that, because these things I'm leaving in your hands, they're valuable to me. I remember... Um, when Tanny and I, the first time we left our kids home alone without a babysitter. Whew, man, brings back the sweats because you have this long list in your mind of, of how many things could go wrong. The house is going to burn down. I mean, someone's going to break in. There's all these things that could go wrong, right? So before you leave your kids, you, you look them in the eye and you say, okay, here are the expectations. Here's what I want you to do and not do. Here's how you should conduct yourselves in our absence, and of course, if there's an emergency, how to reach us. So final instructions are a big deal. And, it's, and they say a lot about the person who's leaving, right? It, it says a lot about what that person who's leaving, what's super important to them. So today we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before he is arrested. What was heavy on Jesus' heart in that moment? Put yourself back in that time in those sandals. What would have been heavy on his heart? What did he most want his guys to know? Realizing that within hours, he's going to be taken away. Imagine being one of the 12 in this moment as well. You've devoted three years of your life to following Jesus. And you've, you've seen some amazing things. You've heard some amazing teachings. You've, you've learned. You've grown. You're still confused about some things. But now you hear... In some fuzzy way, wait, this is all coming to an end? What do you mean you're going away? What's going on here, right? And so besides just the grief of, of losing this, this man who's become everything to you, right? That Jesus has become everything to these men, and now suddenly they're dealing with a reality that, wait, hold on, you're, you're going away? Imagine the feeling. The questions would, would come fast and furious. Well, what do we do when you're gone? What is it that you want us to know? What are your final instructions? And so over the next few months, we're going to look at exactly this. This is what we're going to enter into together as a church family, looking at what Jesus left behind for his disciples, what was most important to him. So we're transitioning this morning into a, a, a next major section of, of the book of John. And so we're going to look at, let's, let's put up our outline. Now, we've done this for two years now. Uh, uh, walking you through this outline. I, and by the way, I checked the date. We started in August of 2020. No jokes from Adam. August of 2020. Uh, we began with John's prologue, the first 18 verses of John 1, and that's where John identified the Word, right? The Word who took on flesh. And then soon we moved into John's prelude, which was the rest of chapter 1, which primarily was the testimony of John the Baptist and the calling of those first disciples. Then we came to this huge section, right? Chapters 2 through 12, the public ministry of, of Jesus. And John organizes the public ministry by, the, by these seven signs, right, that we walk through very carefully. Seven signs that validate the identity of Jesus as Israel's Messiah and the very Son of God. Now, today, we get into the private ministry of Jesus, just the Lord and his guys. And this is a section, get this now, that extends over five chapters but chronologically speaking, it's just one night. So when we look at the volume of Scripture and we see, you know, how many, how many chapters do the gospel writers devote to which events in Jesus' life? Imagine now, John says, I'm going to take five chapters to talk about Jesus' final instructions, to talk about the things that were most important to him, from the Last Supper to his arrest, chapters 13 to 17. Amazing, right? Now, you should know that many Christians over the centuries believe that these five chapters are the richest, most impactful chapters in all of Scripture. You'll find a lot of people that believe that this section is that rich. So we're going to hear instructions about how we're to love and serve one another. We're going to hear some beautiful instructions about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And my favorite part in chapter 17, when Jesus is going to passionately intercede 
for the church before the Father. And, and by extension, intercede for us as members of his body before the Father. So next few months are going to be amazing. Okay, so there's our timeline. That's where we're headed. Now, let's look at our, our, our Passion Week timeline real fast. In chapter 12, you can see on the left side of the screen, chapter 12, we walk through a number of key events that are leading up to where we are this morning, starting with the, the Sabbath on Friday where Jesus arrived in, in Bethany, all the way through the Tuesday of Passion Week. And we looked at three big events. Do you remember? Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet at that supper in Bethany. Then the triumphal entry, what we call the triumphal entry on that Sunday as Jesus came into Jerusalem for the last time. And then we looked at the importance of this contingent of Greeks, right, on Tuesday, who came seeking a private audience with Jesus. And we saw how that event triggered Jesus to sort of close things up, withdraw from the temple, and to hide himself from the Jewish people. Now we come to chapter 13. See the gray section there? It's Thursday evening. So we've jumped from Tuesday to Thursday evening, and the disciples have made preparations for observing the Passover in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure where. There are, by the way, you go to Israel, there's some guides will tell you they figured out that where that room is. They haven't. It's, it's, a, it's just they're reeling you in. Okay, But it was somewhere in the city of Jerusalem according to Jesus' own instructions. Now, as we know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in their upper room narrative, they put at the center of their Gospels what we call communion, right? The institution of the Lord's table. John does not. John does not record that at all. He's going to take us in a different direction. We'll get to that in just a second. But we're familiar with these words because we hear them as members almost every month at communion, right? Luke says, when the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So we know that takes place on this evening, on this Thursday evening in the upper room. Now, what did this scene look like? Many artists have tried to describe what it would have looked like. And wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall? To be with Jesus and the 12 in this upper room, this solemn moment, right? Where communion is instituted for all time until he returns. And for Jesus to begin to talk about his final instructions. We know it, it wasn't what da Vinci painted, <laughs> okay? I mean, this is this famous painting, right? It would not have looked like this. There's so many things wrong with this picture. I mean, I know it's beautifully painted, but there's so many things wrong with it. It's probably more like this. I, I, I like the grittiness of this. This is probably more realistic, but in terms of the setup, this is probably the most accurate depiction based on the culture of what we know. As Luke reports, the custom of that time was that men would recline on the floor, around the table. No chairs were present. And I know, I think about that, I'm like, that sounds so uncomfortable. I cannot recline for very long at all, but this is the way it was. No chairs. And normally, a man would lay on his left side, and he would eat with his right hand. That was, that was typical. The table itself would have to have been very, very, uh, quite a bit lower than the tables we sit at, right? More like coffee table level. And oftentimes, in a, in a, in a large group like this, it would be in a U-shape pattern, so that everybody could sort of see each other. Now, we're not sure exactly how the disciples were arranged at the table. If we look at the other gospel accounts, it appears that John was to the right of Jesus and sh shockingly Judas to his left, right? And there's all kinds of sim symbolism in that. We could talk about that later. And, and Peter, it seems, was also nearby, perhaps to the right of John. What we can know for sure is that Jesus would have been in the middle, because that was the place at a Passover meal where the father of the family would sit so that he could lead the ceremonial aspects of the feast. So Jesus would have been in the middle. Now, let me read one more passage from Luke 22 that will set the scene for what John recalls on that night. So this is really key. If I've bored you so far, pay attention because this is really, really key. Here's what Luke records that night. He says, And there arose also a dispute among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Amazing. And he, Jesus, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become the, like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? 
Is it not the one who reclines at the table? So look at those, those last couple questions. It's rhetorical, isn't it? Because the answer is obvious. Who's the greatest? The one who reclines, not the one who serves. Why? That's the way the world's arranged. We just accept that, don't we? You know, the great person reclines and the low person serves. And that's the way the world is and we've all just adopted it. Jesus says, no. Look at the next statement. I'm going to leave this on the screen by itself because it's so important. First of all, Jesus uses that phrase, I am. Ego, I me, right? He's I am. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. Wow. You guys can bicker all day about who's the greatest, but I'm among you as the one who serves. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to John 13 now. Let that be the background. Keep that statement in mind as we, as we turn there. John 13, verse 1. I'm going to cover 11 verses. The first half of this amazing narrative of the washing of the disciples' feet. John 13, 1. Let's see how John now opens up this, this new section of his gospel. And verse 1 really is a, a hinge point. It's a key verse. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this whole section, in fact, the whole rest of John's gospel through chapter 21, this verse is its theme and its glory, that Jesus loved his own. I mean, just... If you want to underline that in verse 1, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. As I shared earlier, final instructions is a big deal. You want to make sure that you say all the right things, and you want to make sure that your relationships are left intact. And look in verse 1 how John conveys the importance of this hour. In this moment, in that upper room on that night, Jesus knew that his time had come. He was to fulfill the role that he knew he was sent for, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will become that grain of wheat, remember? The grain of wheat that must go into the ground. It must die in order to produce a harvest of salvation. And so he's moved in this moment with an overwhelming sense of love for his friends, these men. We sometimes forget this because we read through the gospel so fast. Men he had spent three years with. I mean, if you, if you picked anybody in this room and said, we're going to spend three years together every day walking through life, you would bond extremely closely with that person. Or, be, or they'd just drive you crazy, right? They would just annoy you. But you would have a bond together. These men spent three years with Jesus. These men were his companions and his students and his helpers in the ministry. These are men he would have had deep conversations with. He would have shared deep emotions with these men. Jesus had a unique and special love for them because they were his own, John says. And they were his own because Jesus had chosen them, right, as disciples. And they were his own because the Father had given them to Jesus to be saved. And they were his own because he would soon purchase them with his blood. There's a tight bond here. And know this, friends, those same reasons apply not just to the 11 that were in that room that night, but to you and I. If you were found in Christ, these same things apply to you 2,000 years later because you've been chosen, because you've been drawn, you've been redeemed. You are Jesus' own in the very same way. I know we haven't spent three years with him. We get to spend eternity with him, which is pretty cool. But we didn't get those, those three years of bonding, but still we are his own. And you have to see that here. How much does God love you? How much does Jesus love you? Look at the end of verse 1 again. He loved them to the end. That's how much. Now, aistelos in the Greek can be, can be translated to the end. That is a, a literal understanding of that phrase. But the context, most scholars look at this contextually and say there's actually a, probably a better translation for it. And it goes like this. Having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the fullest extent, the telos, which is the purpose of something. He loved them to the fullest extent. In other words, it doesn't just mean he loved them until his physical life was over, which was coming up very quickly, but he loved them eternally. He loved them utterly and completely. It's a love that will never end. We can't even fathom that, but an eternal love. He loved them to the fullest. And here's why I find this love so interesting. Because these are deeply flawed men. All 11 
set aside Judas for a moment. Those 11 were deeply flawed men like us, like you and me, sinners. And yet Jesus still loves them to the fullest extent. Knowing that they had, these guys had already failed Jesus multiple times in the past, right? They'd already, they'd already acted cluelessly and acted with cowardice, right? And knowing that in the present they still aren't getting it. Imagine Jesus sitting there with the, with the 11 and just, guys. You know, and now he's watching them squabble over who's the greatest. I mean, I, obviously I don't know that Jesus is just like, oh, man, seriously, guys? He's watching them squabble. And they're probably even fighting over who gets to sit where at the table, right? Do I get to be in a chosen seat of honor? And so he's standing back and he's watching this. He knows that one of the guys right to his left is going to betray him soon. He knows that all of them except John are going to flee for their very lives. They're going to run out on him once he gets arrested. The strongest of the bunch, Peter, is going to deny even knowing him. And yet Jesus loves them to the fullest extent. Let that sit there in your heart for a moment and apply that to yourself. This is unlike any human love that we've ever known, any of us. It's unlike any human love that we've ever experienced. I know it's unlike any human love that any of us have ever extended to somebody else. This is a, this is a, a divine love. This is a supernatural love that is rooted in God's sovereign will and purpose. That God can overlook all these things and love somebody so flawed and so, with so many failures in their past and so many failures in the present and still love them to the fullest extent is an amazing thing. That's the way he loves us. And, and this is something you just got to get settled in your heart. I know that for many years I beat myself up as a young Christian. I just couldn't imagine God would love me. And every time I stumbled and fell, I would think, I'm so unworthy of that love. And you just got to get it settled in your heart. That in spite of your past, some of us have messy pasts. God loves you to the fullest extent. Even in your current spiritual walk, everyone has to say, yeah, it's not what it should be. He loves you. If you belong to him, he loves you to the fullest extent. He even knows all the ways you're going to stumble and fall and sin in the future and he still loves you to the fullest extent. It's a love that's constant and unchanging. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his sovereign grace. Because if it was based on your performance, you wouldn't make the cut. And neither would I. None of us would. So you just got to get this settled, right? This is why we sing amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? I don't get it. It makes no sense that God would choose me. But he has. And this is, why, this is why in the power that he provides in our lives, why we so desperately strive and long to love him back with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? At least that should be the dynamic. We don't love him back because we're trying to perform for him. We're just so awestruck by the love he's extended to us that we strive and desire to love him back. And then he provides the power by his spirit to do so. What an amazing God we have, right? Let's keep going. Look at verses two and three. I mean, just verse one could be a sermon, right? That is just so powerful. Being loved to the fullest extent. Okay, remember again, John doesn't record anything about the Passover meal itself. Nothing about communion. What he's gonna do in the next few verses is describe an event in that upper room that none of the other gospel writers do describe. So it's unique to John, and it's so beautiful. Verse two, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, and I'm going to stop there, and I know that's an awkward place to stop. In the NAS, it sort of leaves that, that leaves it hanging, but there's some things here you have to see. Jesus knows everything that's happening in this moment. You have to see this. He is sovereignly in control of all of these events. First of all, we've already seen in verse 1 that he knows that his hour for departure has come, right? 
He knows where he's, so Jesus knows where he's come from, he knows where he's going, and he knows that the, 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 the hour for his departure has, has come. He also knows, he's fully aware that in this invisible kingdom that surrounds us, there are always powers of darkness at work. We're not good at this, by the way. We, we sometimes forget that we are surrounded by, by actual spiritual powers of darkness. Jesus was very, very aware of this, right? He had already had his battle with the devil. He knows. So he knows the devil is seeking to undermine him. He knows that the devil has seized upon the character flaws in Judas and has been cultivating him for some time to play this role as betrayer. Jesus knows this. We know because Luke tells us. Jesus is going to say this at the table. Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going, look, as it has been determined. This is all the plan, right? But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Jesus knows everything that is happening. This is God's sovereign unfolding plan. And the most important thing he knows, look at verse three again, he knows that the Father at this moment had given all things into his hands. The Father's given all things into his hands. Nothing in this moment could be more important than Jesus knowing that. Why? Well, we we should never forget or even try to lessen the fact that a a man like Jesus, fully human, the, the, the dread that he was feeling about the fact that in just hours he is going to be nailed to a cross. We, we can read right past that and forget the dread, right? The terror that you would feel knowing you're about to go through this. And not just the pain and the humiliation of, of the crucifixion, but Jesus understood the coming terror of having to stand in the place of guilty sinners to suffer the righteous wrath of the Father. It's beyond what we can fathom. So in that moment, he needed to know that the Father had put all this in his hands, right? He's sovereignly in control. He is not a victim of a human plot here. He is not being bounced around by by the will of man. He is in control of all things. All he has to do now is do what he's done all along, is faithfully obey the Father to the very end. That's so important to know. Okay, so the meal has begun now. Judas is plotting his next move. What is Jesus going to do? Go back to verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, verse 4, what did he do? He got up from the supper. Now, we know what he's about to do, right? He's going to wash the feet of the disciples. Now, this is where culture and context matter. Okay, two things you've got to be aware of. What is the deal with foot washing? How many of you guys are glad we've never done it in church? Everybody's like, I think it's really great, but I don't really want to do it in church. I get it, okay? It's not, listen, it's not an ordinance like baptism. I think it's fine. I think churches that are convicted to do it, amen and amen, it's not an ordinance, okay? But, but there's something beautiful about this, but you have to know culturally what's going on here. It was customary in that day that when a group came into a house to a meal, that the lowest household servant or slave would wash the feet of the guests. That was an expected thing in that day. Secondly, don't forget how Luke already told us that the disciples had entered that upper room in the middle of a debate over who was the greatest. That's an important background feature. They're not discussing who's the holiest or who's the most faithful. They're discussing who is going to be the, especially they're looking, see, these guys are so confused. We're looking down the road at the kingdom, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Do I get to sit at the right hand of Jesus? They're having this debate about who's the greatest, right? Who gets the seats of honor at the table? And with that mindset and with that heart posture, they all pile into this upper room and nobody's feet get washed. Nobody. The whole cultural expectation goes out the window. Nobody's feet get washed and they begin to eat with dirty feet. So interesting. Now, if Jesus had said, hey, guys, somebody want to wash my feet, they all would have jumped up to do it. He's the master, right? But wash one another's feet? Uh Uh-uh. I'm not doing that. What? What? Thaddeus thinks I'm his servant? I'm not doing that. What? Simon the Zealot thinks I'm going to bend down and wash? -uh. Nuh-uh. Because to do that would have meant I go down the ladder and I push somebody up up the ladder, right? And they have an advantage over me now. Imagine this. Again, 
Jesus is watching this, right? Imagine. He's observing the squabbling. And he waits till they all get settled. Nobody's feet are washed. They're reclining at the table. Recall again. Let me just put it up here. Jesus says, The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you the one who serves. Now verse 4 Jesus, without another word, gets up from the table. Mic drop. He doesn't have to say anything, right? It's just he gets up from the table. I mean, again, to be a fly on the wall to see the reaction of the 12. What's he going to do? What's Jesus doing? What's he doing? Where's he going? And the way John describes what happens next in these next two verses, it's almost like a reporter's account. He's going to recall step by step, six steps in all, of exactly what Jesus does. You get the sense that this was so deeply imprinted on John's mind that he had to include every single detail. Right? Verse 1. In fact, I'll put this up on the screen. Or step 1. He laid aside his garments. Now, what does that mean? That's the, 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 out, the outer garments, the robe and the tunic. So, so this left Jesus in just his undergarment. That's it. The same way he would end up on the cross. Is, is what he appears now in front of his men. Amazing. Step two, in taking a towel, this long linen towel. Step three, he girded himself, meaning he tied that towel around his waist so that he could use it. And now what you need to see in this picture is Jesus appears as a, a bondservant. He has the appearance now in what he's wearing and not wearing as a household slave in front of the disciples. And then he moves over to where there's a water basin. And to me, that's evidence enough that whoever set up the room for them put a basin there as if to say, you guys should wash your feet before you eat. So he goes over to the basin, right? Step four, verse five, he pours the water into the basin. Next step, he begins to wash the disciples' feet Sixth step, and to wipe or dry them with a towel which he had wrapped around his waist. So you got to picture the scene now. So one by one, he moves from, from guy to guy, right? Washing their feet, drying them with a the towel. And the way I picture this is utter silence in the room. All you're hearing is the water sloshing around in the basement. You're hearing Jesus' hand move from the, the feet to the towel, you got to imagine the shock of what's going on, the embarrassment of what's happening. All that bickering, all that bickering that they had done about who's the greatest. And they've been silenced by what Jesus does here. Man, I had a hard time writing the sermon in this part. I, just, I cried like a baby last night. The Messiah, the King of Kings, bent down, dressed as a slave, washing the feet of sinners. And they're looking at this, his posture and the way he appears, and the Messiah is serving them. I am the one, he says, among you who serves. I mean, there aren't words to describe the level of condescension in this, and, and I use that term in its positive theological sense, condescension, it's a term, you guys, that describes the unimaginable distance between creator and creature. Again, we, we can hardly understand it. This vastness between God and man, between heaven and earth, between absolute holiness and total depravity. That's the distance that Jesus comes across in order to do this. It is amazing how low God has stooped to meet humanity at the point of our greatest need. We can't forget this. I know you guys are like, I get it. It's the gospel. Man, we don't think about this enough. We don't meditate on this enough. How low he has stooped to meet us at our greatest need. That's condescension. 
that Almighty God would stoop low enough just to take on flesh and live a human life. That is wild enough. But that he would stoop even lower to dress as a slave and wash the feet of sinners. There's no human comparison for this. I tried to think in my mind, how can I compare this? The best I can come up with is, is imagine if a billionaire CEO or a five-star general or the president of the United States came to your house and, and wiped your nose after you sneezed. And that's still not as much as what Jesus has just done. It, it's, it's, from our perspective, it's just ridiculous. But it's so beautiful. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. This is the verse that came to mind as I was working through tears last night. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What kind of God does that? What kind of God cares enough to do that for his creatures? And then, you just want to pile on top of this, catch this. He would have washed Judas' feet, his own betrayer. The next time you or I are tempted to say, I just can't stand to be in the same room with that person, will you stop and think about your master bending down as a slave to wash the feet of his own betrayer? So this is Jesus acting out a living parable for his friends to witness with their eyes. This is, this is the beginning of their final instructions. This is what you have to become, is what he's saying. Because when I depart, I can't be here to show you this anymore. This is what you need to become, is what he's saying. This is something that they needed to see, they needed to feel the weight of it, rather than just be taught. So he lived it out. This is almost like a prophetic action we see in the life of a Jeremiah or an Ezekiel, a physical living out of a lesson that Jesus shows them in this moment. Several decades later, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, would catch the spirit of this moment in the passage that Grant already read this morning in our call to worship. We'll put it back on the screen just so you can see the parallels here. Paul writes this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, a lot of scholars have done this comparison, but it's so interesting to look at. Look at, this, look at the language similarities between John 13 and Philippians 2. First of all, knowing that he had come from God, John writes. Paul says, although he existed in the form of God. We'll keep going through this. He got up from the supper. Paul says he did not regard equality with, a God, with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he got up from his heavenly throne. He left his throne, right? Because he, he wasn't going to grasp onto this idea, well, I'm God, I can't go down there. He got up from the supper. He got up from his throne. He laid aside his garments and he emptied himself, laying aside his glory. And taking a towel and taking the form of a bondservant, he girded himself, meaning he, he put himself in a posture to work. Being made in the likeness of man, he was put into a posture to work on our behalf. He poured out water into a basin. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a reference to what? The pouring out of his blood. Amazing parallel. Just a summary statement. You've got the cleansing of dirty feet, and you've got the cleansing of sin. Point by point, Jesus acts out symbolically what Paul later would describe theologically. That's our Lord. Amazing parallels. Okay. Deep breath. Let's look at Peter now. 
me, let me just, are we all grateful for Peter? Um, Peter is sometimes called the representative Christian because we're all so much like him, right? He, he does, he, the very things he does are the things that many of us would, would do given the same set of circumstances. Peter's emotional and he's impulsive. He doesn't always think before he acts. He often blurts things out before really processing through it. But friends, listen, there's one thing you can't deny. Peter loves Jesus. He loves him, even though he's going to deny him. So much so that when church tradition tells us that when eventually he was executed, he said, crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die in the same fashion as my Lord. Let's look at verse 6. What do you think is going on in this moment? I, again, I picture in my mind's eye a sort of uh, embarrassed silence in the room. You hear the water sloshing around. And I picture the disciples, they're watching Jesus, and, and they, they're, they're stunned. They don't know what to say, but they're looking at each other as if to say, is somebody going to say something here? Is somebody going to tell Jesus that he shouldn't be doing this? That this is beneath him? As always, Peter's our guy. <laughs> He's going to do it, right? Verse 6. So Jesus came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, in plain English, Lord, are you really going to wash my dirty feet? Are you serious now? Because this is the way, look, to me this is an, un I, I, think I, would, I think I would say something similar. I, I'm just being honest, and maybe you can be honest. I probably would have said the same thing. I think this is a very understandable reaction on Peter's part. He was just the only guy willing to say it. Because this is the way human beings view authority, right? It's a top-down structure. Elites get served, right? Commoners serve elites. That's the way we've all been raised to think, and, and that's just the order of the world, right? In, in, in the world, the sign of a man who has authority is, is that everybody serves him, right? He's got a, a staff. He's got people. And whatever he, he, he barks, they jump, right? They do whatever. That's how we have been raised to think of authority. That's the way society was structured even within Judaism in the first century. And so in Peter's mind, Jesus is violating the natural order of things here. And, and Peter's so sure of himself as Jesus comes to him. He's like, in his mind, he's thinking, I think, all these other guys are failing to say something. They're not going to object, so I'll do it. I'll, I'll take one for the team. So Peter breaks the silence. He makes this dramatic statement, right? And he thinks he's doing the righteous thing. He thinks he's doing the righteous thing, but he's completely unaware of all the pride that's built into his statement. This is what, have you heard the term humble brag? Right? We would say that today. This is a humble brag. Look at how humble I'm being as I alone among the 12 stand and object to this. It's a humble brag. I mean, does, does Peter think he knows better than Jesus what's appropriate and what's not? Does, does Peter think that he has the standing to correct Jesus? No, you shouldn't be doing that. Should he not just trust the Lord, sit still, be quiet, and learn? Yes, that's what he should do. Again, I'm not blaming him. I probably would have done the same thing. But that's what he should do. Sit still, be quiet, learn what the master wants to teach here. Now, Jesus would have been perfectly justified in rebuking Peter, but look how gracious he is. Verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand later. Peter, you'll get this. Shh. <laughs> Just shh. Right? Just sit there. Sit there and learn. <laughs> this would have been me. And I'll give Peter a pass. Most people give Peter a pass for that. But what he's about to do now crosses a line, right? Verse 8. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Whew. Did you just rebuke Jesus? <laughs> uh, I love uh, Calvin's commentary on this. Here's what, here's what Calvin, I think what Calvin says about this is very insightful. He says, now he, meaning Peter, errs more grievously. He has been corrected and yet does not yield. And indeed, it's a common fault that ignorance is closely followed by obstinacy. Ooh, that one hurts, right? 
Ooh. His respect for Christ loses all of its gracefulness. He goes on. The true wisdom of faith, therefore, is to approve and embrace with reverence whatever proceeds from God. Until a man renounces the liberty of judging the works of God, whatever exertions he may make to honor God, pride will always lurk under the garb of humility. We don't judge the works of God. We don't have that standing. That's pride. Peter doesn't realize it, but he's protesting against the grace of God here. Think about that. Yeah, it's true that he's undeserving of having his feet washed, but that's the very point that Jesus is trying to show him. That's the very point. None of us deserves the grace of God. None of us deserves the love of God. What Jesus was doing in that upper room was freely given to him. The only question is, will you now receive it? That's the question. God says, I freely give to you. Can you receive it? And by protesting against this free gift of grace, Jesus is about to respond to Peter with a very severe warning. And this is a warning that that the vast majority of people who live on this earth will not heed. So pay close attention. If you reject having Jesus wash your feet on the grounds that he's too important and you're unworthy, let me say that again, if you reject having Jesus wash your feet on the grounds that he's too important and you're too sinful, then you will also reject him dying for you on the cross. Because one is just a picture of the next. If you can't receive him freely washing your feet, how are you going to freely receive him dying in your place on the cross? It's all grace. It's all freely given. Can you receive it? As shocking as it seems, so many people in our world, they're too prideful to receive that gift. And they will go to their grave in their sins, shaking their fist at God, saying, I don't need you, I can do it on my own. And they'll pay for it eternally. Shocking to us. People want to do it their own way. Even though the gift is freely offered. So look how Jesus now responds. This is the warning, verse 8. Jesus answered Peter, If I do not wash you, you have no part or share with me. That's the warning. If you can't receive this gift of grace, you have no part in me. Now this, this statement, it's like a slap across the face to Peter, right? And he comes back to his senses. To, to, be, to have no share with Jesus would be devastating for Peter. And so verse 9, Peter says to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Gosh, typical. He swings the pendulum from here to here, right? This is what Peter does. I love him. I love him. Okay, Lord, if that's what it takes to be with you, then dump every bit of water in that basin all over me. I want a full bath. (laughs) To me, that's a wonderful response. And listen, I've heard people criticize Peter so harshly for this whole exchange here, right? And, and I acknowledge that there's, no really, there's not really a sign of outward repentance in this, built into this. I see that. I'm not sure he's totally aware yet of how prideful he's been, but how can you not admire this sort of over-the-top passion and love for Jesus? It's just genuine. That's the thing about Peter. Everything he does and says is just real. You're not faking it. And listen, this is just me. I'll just sidebar. I would rather live this life impulsive and emotional and battling for kingdom things, even if I sometimes maybe cross a line or two, but battling for kingdom things, than to live a a life on this earth that's passive and timid and doesn't take risks, that that just says, you know, the goal of the Christian life is just to be a nice person. Uh Uh-uh. No, I'll take Peter all day and twice on Sunday. I'll side with the boldness of a man like Peter or Paul or Athanasius or Augustine or Chrysostom or Luther or Spurgeon. That, that, that's, what, that's who I want to go to war with, right? So I, I'm, I'm not going to be too hard on Peter. And again, look at, look at what Jesus does. He's gracious again in verse 10. Jesus says to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Oh, okay. 
So I picture Jesus sort of chuckling here. Maybe a, maybe a smile comes across his face. Okay, Peter, so you want a full bath, do you? And let me tell you a mystery. You're already clean. You're already clean. Wow. All you need to do now is have your feet washed. That's it. What does that mean? Well, there's, there's some natural logic to this, right? These are things people knew back in the first century, things we know today, right? When you take a bath in the morning or a shower, most of us probably take a shower, we come out clean, right? But then we walk through life and our feet get dirty, right? It just happens. That's, we don't need a whole nother bath or shower at the end of the day. We just maybe need to clean our feet. That's what Jesus is saying. But the spiritual application is so clear and so important here. We only need the washing of regeneration one time. In fact, it can only be done one time. We don't get saved repeatedly, right? So spiritually, we don't bathe over and over again, but we do need to have our feet consistently washed. And the point he's making here, this is a reference to our daily walk with Christ, right? The daily cleansing that comes through confession and repentance. That we need over and over. This should be a daily habit in your life to get your feet cleansed. You're already clean if you're found in Christ, but you need to have your feet washed. Amen? It's no wonder that it's John who writes these amazing words in his first epistle. There it is. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Isn't that great? Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself, our high priest, is the sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. So we have sacrifice and high priest in one. We have an advocate who goes before the Father and says, that person belongs to me. If we confess our sins, John writes, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is, this is a daily habit and discipline for us. This practice of coming to the Father through our advocate, that's the mark of a true believer. It's the mark of having true fellowship with Christ, that we come and get our feet washed. Your friends know this, the world is a filthy place. And we've got to be, we can't withdraw from the world. We've got to be in the world, but it is a dirty place. But our Savior has overcome the world. And so we can come to him. We can come to him. If you're found in him, you are clean. I can't stress that loudly enough. If you are a true follower of Christ, born again, you are clean in his sight. In fact, that's why you can come to the throne of grace in the first place. It's because you belong to him. Here's the cool thing. He is not going to be surprised about all the dirt on your feet. And he is not going to be surprised about how that dirt got there. Because he knows. Do you think you're hiding things from him? We, we don't want to come to him, right? We're like, I'm so embarrassed. He knows about the dirt. And he's standing there with arms open wide and a basin saying, come on. Come on and have communion with me. We'll work through this together. But you're clean. You're clean. Come get your feet washed now. That's the picture we get here. And it's so beautiful. In fact, Jesus confirms this as we finish the passage. End of verse 10. He says, and you are clean. What a statement, right? Then he says, but not all of you. Ooh, not all of you. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So Judas is not clean. Judas does not belong to Christ. The other 11, they belong. They're born again. They're sons of light, right? They have eternal life. They are children of God. And here's the great news. Nothing can snatch those 11 from his hand. And that is so important because guess what? They are all going to fail spectacularly. Coming back to what I said earlier, they're all going to let Jesus down. They're all going to fail, and yet they're clean. So good. So as we close, I want you again to picture in your, in your mind's eye this image of Jesus in his undergarment as a slave, washing the feet of his disciples. And then I want you to think even bigger. I want you to see that same Jesus on the cross, grace upon grace, one foreshadowing the other. And as you do that, consider the words of Spurgeon as he contemplated this many, many years ago. And he said this, was Jesus not on earth always stripping off one robe of honor and then another till naked he was fastened to the cross? 
And there did he not empty out his innermost self, pouring out his lifeblood, giving himself up until they laid him penniless in a borrowed grave. How low was our Redeemer brought? And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you've never seen it. And if you're not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. You know, Peter never forgot that moment in the upper room. And here's how I know that. Decades later, when he wrote his first epistle, he wrote to these scattered Christians about the subject of humility, something he had learned a lot about. And here's what he wrote. You probably know this verse, but it's so interesting to look at. He said, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Gird yourself, gird yourself. Wrap that towel around your waist. I think that's the image in his mind of how Jesus took on the appearance of a bondservant. Clothe yourself with humility, gird yourself and grab a towel in the lives of others. And then he goes on, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You think Peter had himself in mind? I think he probably did. I think over the years, he had become painfully aware of the pride that he had revealed that night, and it both shamed him and it taught him. And it matured him and it grew him. And later in his life, he can tell others, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So where is John headed? with this whole story. There's another nine verses to this particular part of the narrative, and we'll get to that next time. But for today, I just want you to walk away this morning basking in the love and grace of your Savior. That's it. A God who would not only bend down and wash your feet, but a God who for the joy set before him was willing to go to the cross to make you his own. That's enough. That's enough for me. I hope it's enough for you. We'll get more practical next time, but let's bask in his love. Bow your head, would you? Lord, there's, a, there's not words to describe how we as creatures even feel about this, this scene when we understand how low you have stooped to love us and to make us your own. It is just just an amazing thing, Lord. So I I pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters here at this church, God, that we would never stop contemplating what you have done. Never stop contemplating what you were willing to do to save us and to make us your own. That we would continue to preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of your sovereign grace in our lives, that this image of you washing feet, Lord, would never leave our minds, but we would constantly reflect on it. And then we'd go out and and treat others likewise. I look forward to next time talking more about what this example means in our lives. May you seal these truths to our hearts, Lord. Strengthen us for what you have. Coming down the, the road this week in our lives, may this example Prepare us for what you have, for the mission that you have for us. And this morning we just say, we love you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Amen.